You can turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 16. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. According to Forbes magazine, which is a publication that kind of covers stories in the business world, uh, apparently studies show that 65% of Americans would rather see their boss fired than to receive a pay raise for themselves. Over half of Americans surveyed would, would rather see their own boss fired than receive a pay raise for themselves. And in order to help this sad situation, uh, Forbes magazine was kind enough to publish an article last fall called Five Ways to Go from Being a Good Boss to a Great Boss. And uh, I'm not going to go through the whole article. If you're a supervisor or manager shaking at that statistic right now, you can talk to me afterwards. I'll send you the article, and you can go from a good boss to a great boss on your own. But the number one thing it said to becoming a great boss was listen to your employees. Great bosses, they listen. The best thing you can do to improve as a boss is to listen to your employees. People, people long to be heard. People, people long to be understood. There, there's something truly devastating about not being understood, especially by our superiors. And when, when the demands of us are, are beyond our ability and our circumstances are, are disregarded, there, there's something just devastating. It's just something that, that uh, shakes us when that happens. Thankfully, we find something very different from that in Hebrews 4, verses 4 through 16, where we read, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Father, that's what we need right now, mercy and grace. This is time we dedicate to sitting underneath the preaching of your word, which is living and active. And we need your grace in order to be made alive by it and in, in order to be conformed into the image of your Son. So in your kindness, would you grant us mercy and grace right now as we look at these wonderful words from the book of Hebrews. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we 
come to these last verses of chapter 4 in Hebrews, it's helpful to remember that uh, the author of Hebrews is making an argument here that started back in chapter 3. He's warning his audience about the danger of disbelieving God, of, of falling away even from the living God. Started back in chapter 3. Failing to believe God uh, is a tragic idea because God is a God of majestic glory, uh, which is primarily displayed for us in in Jesus Christ. Uh, So in order to encourage us to remain faithful, the author of Hebrews is seeking to put Jesus on display for us in the book of Hebrews, in all his majestic glory. So we see in Hebrews 1 and 2 that Jesus is greater than the angels. And we see in chapters 3 and 4 that he's, he's greater than the great Moses of the Old Testament. And here, starting in verse 14, the author shifts and he starts to make an even longer case of demonstrating how Jesus is greater than the priests that we find in the Old Testament. And in order to avoid falling away, in order to to encourage us to persevere in our faith, the author of Hebrews points us to resources that help us do that. The the first thing he pointed to back in chapter 3 was was God's people. He pointed us to the church. In chapter 4, he he pointed us already to God's word. But here in in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, we see another critical resource besides God's word and God's people in our effort to persevere, and that is prayer. This will hopefully be timely in God's providence after looking a number of weeks at the Lord's Prayer in Luke's Gospel. If, if uh, we've been looking at how to pray, instructed by Jesus in Luke, the author of Hebrews is, is giving us a reason why to pray. And if we're going to persevere in prayer, we need to know what we have, we need to know what we must do, and we we need to know what we will obtain. And I think that's a helpful way of unpacking these verses. So that's what we're going to look at. First of all, if we're going to persevere in prayer, we need to know what we have. And And the main thing that's put on display for us in these three verses, is, is Jesus as the great high priest. The great high priest who's gone beyond the heavens, who can sympathize with our weaknesses, and who's been tempted like us in every way, yet without sin. So lo- let's look at verse 14. Jesus is described here as the great high priest who's gone beyond the heavens. Uh, what is, what, what's, what's that with this term, the great high priest? Priest. This is connected to the priests of the Old Testament. Uh, you had the priests who, who served in, in temple service. They were the ones who mediated the relationship between God and his people. They offered sacrifices. Uh, but then uh, there, there'd be a number of priests, but then there was only one high priest at a time in the Old Testament in, in the history of God's people. And the most important thing that the high priest did, uh, the instructions for what he, he was to do are recorded in Leviticus chapter 16. He had a unique task assigned to him. And as we read through the book of Leviticus, it's easy to get caught up in the laws and the rules. Uh, it, what's important to remember in Leviticus is, as you come to that, uh, if you've never read it before or next time you, you come there, uh, if you're struggling 
The, the book of Leviticus is not about all the rules that are contained in that book. The book of Leviticus is primarily about God's holiness. Uh, it's a whole book about what the, the Levitical priesthood was called to do in order to have God, the living God, dwelling in the presence of the people. And so, accordingly, the, it, we have instructions here for the high priest. Uh, if you read Leviticus chapter 16, it's a significant chapter in the book of Leviticus. And what we learn is that uh, in the tabernacle service, remember that the tabernacle was this, this tent structure that, that uh, housed the holy things of God, the whole camp of God's people as they were in the wilderness was to be a holy camp. Outside the camp was unclean and unholy, but the camp was to be holy. And as you got closer to the center, you got closer to concentrated holiness. At the very center of the camp is this tent, the the tabernacle that had two rooms. And in one of those rooms, you'd have priests that would go in daily to do the tabernacle service. But there was a second room the inner room, the inner sanctuary, the holy of holies that no one was ever to enter. Ever. Except for the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. What the high priest was to do on the Day of Atonement was he was to get a bull, a ram, and and two goats. One of those goats was the scapegoat. Uh, If you're familiar with that, we're not going to focus on that this morning, but uh, we want to focus on what the, what the other goat was for and what the bull was for. Uh, what the high priest would do on the Day of Atonement, he, was, he would put on these special holy clothes, ho- clothes designated only for this task. He'd put them on, and the first thing he would go do is he would enter through a veil that separated that first room from the second room in the tabernacle. And the first thing he would do, he was to do, is to put, light incense so that a cloud would form in that room. And then he was to go back outside into the tabernacle court and he was to first slaughter the bull. And he was to take some of that bull's blood and he was to walk back through that first room of the tabernacle into the inner room of the tabernacle and sprinkle some of the blood of that bull on the Ark of the Covenant. The only item in that room was the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat over the top, and he was to sprinkle blood on that, signifying atonement that he was making for himself, for his own sins and the sins of his family. Then he was to go out again, and then he was, gonna, he was to go to the goat, and he was to slaughter the goat and take some of that goat's blood and bring the goat's blood in through the first room and then into through the veil into the second room and sprinkle that goat's blood on the mercy seat. This signaling atonement and forgiveness for the sins of all the people of Israel. That, that inner room, so simple with only one, one item in it, represented the throne room of God in heaven. It was, it was, it was as if God was their, was their king and their leader, and, and, and he, he, he camped in the middle of their camp, and his throne room was, was through the veil of the tabernacle that was, that was in the middle of their tent. So th- this was the task of the, the high priest. But, but here in chapter 4 of Hebrews, we have Jesus called the great high priest. What makes Jesus the great high priest? A, a lot of these things have a way of ramping up as, as they come to the New Testament. You have 
You have shepherds in the Old Testament, but you have Jesus who's called the chief shepherd in the New Testament. And we have here, not the high priest, but Jesus called the great high priest. One of the reasons, there's, there's numerous reasons why he's the great high priest, but one of the reasons is that he is the high priest who has not just passed through the veil, he has passed through the heavens. He, so he's not the high priest who's entered the inner sanctuary of, uh, of the temple here on earth. Jesus is the great high priest who's passed through the heavens and entered the inner sanctuary of the actual throne room of God in heaven. So just to compare these two things, to make this clear, you've got the high priest who, 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 who goes through the veil of the temple to, to enter the, the representation of the throne room of God into the presence of God. But the great high priest passes through the heavens and enters in the actual throne room of God and in, in, in the presence of God, not on earth, but in, in heaven. If the high priest entered the holy of holies, the great high priest entered the holy of holy of holies. So it's one thing to have an earthly high priest mediating your relationship with God, which is what they had in the Old Testament. But it's another thing to have the heavenly high priest mediating your relationship with God. Uh, when I was a teenager, I got to take a trip to Washington, D.C. with my family. And uh, the thing I was most excited about was that we were going to visit the White House. Um, I had heard these great stories about the White House. Obviously, the president lives there. I heard there's a bowling alley and a, like a movie theater and some like kitchen or chef where they just make you whatever you want. I mean, this sounded pretty amazing. This, I was excited to see the White House. And I remember being amazed at the security in the White House, walking up to this, you know, big white building with, with uh, snipers uh, patrolling on, on the roof. And I remember going through the tour and getting done with the tour and being kind of disappointed because, we, you know, we only got to see part of the White House. And um, the part we got to see was almost more like a museum than actually this, to see where, where all the action happened or where the, where the president actually lived. And I remember getting to the end and feeling a little disappointed and thinking, you know, if, if someone knew someone closely connected to the president, that would be the real key here. Then you could see all all of this, that'd be, that'd be so neat. There, there's a sense in which we, we treat the White House as holy, at least on a national level, right? I mean, this is something we protect. Uh, we go to great effort to, to protect. Uh, so much so that if you go and you approach the White House on your own, uh, you'll pro there's a good chance you could be killed. I mean, best case scenario approaching the White House on your own is, is you wake up recovering from your injuries in, in the hospital. That's best case scenario, probably. Now, there's another way to approach the White House, though. What you can do is if you, you have your trip planned, you know, and if you contact, you know, your representatives in, in Washington, D.C., uh, well ahead of time and tell them that you'd like to do this, there's a chance if you go through the steps just right, and if everything works right on their end, they can give you tickets to, to one of these tours of the White House. But even there, best case scenario is you only see part of part of it. And, 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 you know, best case scenario is you catch the president at just the perfect moment. You maybe get to shake, shake his hand or something, something like that. However, you imagine if you could approach the White House with a, with a recognized member of the president's family, 
and what that would lead to. That, that is what would lead to unlimited, continuous access. That's what I wanted as a teenager. But I think that's, that's what we should keep in mind as we think about prayer. We, we pray now today by virtue of the work of the great high priest who has gained us continuous, unlimited access to God's throne. It's no accident here that we have two names for Jesus given in verse 14, right? He, he's called Jesus, getting, referencing or getting at his human nature, but then he's also called the Son of God, getting at his divine nature. He, he's God, which is how he passes not just through the veil of the temple, but he passes through the heavens. But then he's also Jesus. This, this, is, this is a human being. This is Jesus of Nazareth, who, who now mediates our relationship with God, serving as a priest, our high priest, our heavenly high priest. This is, this is unpacked for us here in verse 15, what this looks like, what, what he does. He, he's a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, is what we see first in verse 15. Now, how can God sympathize with our weaknesses? Right? We know God isn't like us. God's very different from us. He, he's all-powerful. He knows all things. He's, he's sovereign over all things. He's, he's eternal. We're, we're, nothing, we're nothing like this. God has never experienced suffering. He's pure and he's holy. He, he's never experienced sin. One way he might, he might respond to that kind of objection is just recognizing that he, he can sympathize with our weakness by virtue of his omniscience. So if he knows all things, he has access to knowledge that he has access to knowledge of our, the experience of our weaknesses. But there's another way that he has knowledge. There's another way that he can sympathize with our weaknesses. And that's not so much by virtue of his omniscience, but by virtue of his incarnation, the act of him becoming human being in the person of Jesus. We read in Hebrews 2, just two chapters earlier, that in verses 17 and 18, that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And just a little bit later, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So he experienced Suffering. He experienced human temptation. He, he experienced what we experienced. The, the Lord Jesus Christ is a great high priest who understands the human condition. He understands the difficulties of our experience, the, the, the difficulties that we face at work, the difficulties that we face at home, the difficulties that we face just as citizens who live in a, in a, in a place with fallen leaders and rulers. But here's what's so amazing about this. Our God is the, he, he's not the kind of God who merely looks down on us from his, the superiority of his transcendent holiness and scoffs at us. That's, that's not what he's like. He is transcendently holy. Uh, he, that is where he exists. He is superior in every single way, but he is also the kind of God who's identified with us in a way that is so personal that he can serve as our high priest who mediates our relationship with God in a way that he genuinely sympathizes with our weaknesses. 
It's important, it's important to think about this when we're being tempted. It's, it's easy to look at our circumstances and think, you know, God, God doesn't understand. God doesn't care about me. He, he doesn't understand the human condition. He's God. He, he, he doesn't understand the struggle of what it's like to be a human being. He doesn't understand the power of temptation and how, how, how powerfully it, it draws us. It's, it's, he, he asks too, too much of us. He, only, he seems to only want to judge me and, and condemn me and, and convict me. And if, if God were just some almighty monadic being, that, that might be true. That would probably be accurate. That isn't the type of God it would be much joy to pray to. And that is not who God is. Hebrews 4 reminds us of what we have. We have a great high priest mediating our relationship with God who has a soft and understanding heart when it comes to our weaknesses. Not only that, he's, he's also, as we see in verse 15, a great high priest who has been tempted like us, yet without sin. So, so he is a high priest who, who is utterly unique. Uh, he, he has become like us in, in every single way, so that as we've just seen, he, he can sympathize with us. He, he is like us. He has experienced what we experience. But then there's this critically important aspect to this high priest that is not like us. And, and that's that he did not sin. Now, the ways that we, he's like us are really important. We, we don't want to downgrade those. Uh, it's important that he was tempted just as we are. He, he experienced the full spectrum of temptation that we experience. He experienced material temptation, longing or coveting material things. He, he experienced emotional temptations, things like being tempted towards Selfish anger. He experienced sexual temptations. Temptation to seek sexual pleasure outside the bounds of God's design. Social temptations. Seeking the recognition and praise of others. Even spiritual temptation. Temptation to, for example, doubt God's goodness. He is the one who is in every respect, as we read here, in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. It's important how similar he is to us. But the thing that's different is just as important, without sin. But you might say, how can he be human if he hasn't sinned? Right? I mean, this is what people say. I'm human. Right? That's what we say when we make mistakes. I'm only human. You know, to be human is to err. Right? The reason you sin, though, is, is not because you're human. The reason that you sin is because you're a sinner. Sin is not a necessary human trait. That's something extra that we have, we have added on. It is not a necessary trait. So you might think Jesus wasn't really tempted like like we are, but, but Jesus was just tempted in every respect, yet without sin. But maybe you think, you know, you haven't really experienced temptation if you haven't sinned, right? Uh, you, you don't know how powerful drugs are until you experience them, right? So Jesus wasn't really tempted. He never really got even got a taste for sin. 
He hasn't experienced temptation like, like we have. And that argument seems to work. But when you think about it a little bit more, it, I think it falls apart. Uh, you, ex- you just think of, for example, three different people, three different human beings. Here, here's how it goes for the first person. They're, they're, you have some sort of temptation stimulus uh, to lie, to cheat, to lust, to steal, to overindulge, whatever. Some sort of temptation stimulus. And you have a, the first person here who resists, but then gives in. Okay, that's, that's experience one. Experience two is a, goes a little bit different. You have temptation stimulus again, and you have resist, 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 and then, and then give in. Now, which, before we go to a third one, which one of those two has experienced temptation in a fuller sense and, and it, with more intensity? It's, it's the second one. The second one. But now consider this, this third person, and, and we're going to insert Jesus here. This is how temptation goes for him. You have temptation stimulus, real temptation stimulus, and you have resist, 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 resist. Trust God's word. Trust God's promises. Trust that God is good. Resist. Victorious. Again and again and again, time after time after time, who has experienced a fuller degree of temptation? You or Jesus? Don't think for a second that Jesus experienced less temptation than we do. This is also what makes Jesus a great high priest. This is a high priest who's worth following, who's worth looking to. Uh, I loved how one commentator summarized this point. He wrote, what we needed was not a fellow loser, but a winner. Not one who shares our defeat, but one who is able to lead us to victory. Not a sinner, but a savior. This is why it's such good news to know. Our representative in heaven is one, verse 15, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And it's on this basis of sinlessness that we find and attain forgiveness. We are human beings created in God's image to bring him glory. But we're also fallen human beings. We're part of a sinful race who are born into this world with a corrupt nature that's opposed to God. We're born spiritually dead. And as a result, we spend our lives living lives of sin and rebellion against God. And as a result of our sin, God being the perfectly pure and holy God that he is, before him, all we have earned is is judgment. All we have earned is, is hell. But wonderfully, God is not only a God of wrath and judgment, God is a God of goodness and beauty and wisdom and love. And, and in his goodness and wisdom and beauty and love, in his, in, in his mercy, God sent his son who took on human flesh in Jesus of Nazareth. He lived a sinless life, just as we've been discussing. He was victorious in the face of every single temptation that he faced. But then this sinless man went willingly to the cross to die and take the punishment for our sin. Not only experiencing the physical pain of crucifixion, but also experiencing the spiritual pain of eternal punishment and separation 
from God. For him, though, there, there was an end. He was able to experience that completely and fully so that at the end he, he was able to announce, it is finished, and he gave up his life. But someone like this, the grave couldn't hold. So three days later, he, he rose from the dead. And later, he ascended into heaven, promising to return one day to judge the world and to make all things new. And in the meantime, in between, when he ascended and when he'll come again, he gives us, everyone, the opportunity to turn away from their sin and put their, their trust in Christ. And if you haven't done that, I... I would plead with you to do that and to speak with me or someone if, if you do. So right now, in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ serves as our great high priest, mediating our relationship with God, making it possible for us to have a relationship with God. A great high priest who's gone beyond the heavens, who sympathizes with our weaknesses, and who's been dented in every way like us, yet without Sin In Christ, we have so much. And in light of what we have, let's look next, secondly, at what we must do. The author of Hebrews calls us to hold fast to our confession and to come to his, draw near to God with confidence. He tells us to hold fast to our confession. We're not, we're not given a confession in this text. We're not even given a specific confession in the Bible. Uh, there's not one that we're supposed to uh, adhere to that's, that's, that's in Scripture. We're to take Scripture and from that to gain a confession. Uh, the, the, the Hebrews here are being told to, that they're supposed to place their hope in, in what they've believed. Uh, their, their confession is in a divine human Savior, right? This is Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the historical figure. This man who died on the cross for sins. But the Son of God, this divine figure who took on human flesh and atoned for our sin by taking the wrath of God. And so we hold fast to the Lord Jesus Christ as our great high priest. And in the context of these verses, that, that, that is our confession. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the great high priest. But, but notice something important here. Let's acknowledge something important here. The author is reminding them that they need to hold fast to their confession. That This is something that apparently these Christians, and I think we can assume all Christians, can easily forget. Holding fast, holding on to our confession is not something that's just automatic for us. We have to do this intentionally. What do you believe? Do you know what the Bible teaches? Are you continuing to develop your understanding of Scripture? Are you testing your beliefs against Scripture? Everyone has a confession. Everyone has a set of beliefs they believe, whether it's explicit or not, whether it's what's written down on paper or in your mind. Everyone has a confession. The question is, is it biblical? Is it match scripture? And are you holding on to it? Is it serving as, as the foundation, the bedrock of your life? Trials and temptations have a way of loosening our grip on what we believe, especially as, as we listen more and more to what the world has for answers. 
The author of Hebrews is, is, is exhorting us here to hold fast to our confession. Of course, not in our own strength or through some earthly priest, but by faith in the great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. And it's on that basis, on the basis of that confession, that we draw near with confidence. Now, obviously, when we're drawing near to the throne of God, verse 16 uh, we're not drawing near in a physical sense, at least at least not yet. Uh, there's only one person who has passed through the heavens at this point, and that is Jesus. But, but God's throne is a spiritual throne, and, and Christians are spiritual people. We're, we're people who've been made alive by the Spirit, and we're people for whom the, the Spirit dwells within us. So Christians approach God's throne spiritually. When we pray, this is where this Trinitarian framework comes from. If you've ever heard this, we, we pray to the Father. You think throne there, on the throne. We pray to the Father, through the Son, thinking here of this, this priestly role that has, he has, this priestly ministry to the Father, through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're told to draw near in this way, with confidence. Confidence? How do we draw, how do you draw, with, draw near with confidence? For sinners, God's throne is a throne of judgment. We just saw this in verse 13, just one verse up in the text. God's throne is a throne of judgment for sinners. It, it effectively evaluates us and judges us. It's a terrifying idea to approach this throne on your own merit. But because of the good news of what God has done for us in Christ, Christians, they don't approach a throne of judgment. For Christians, God's throne is a throne of grace, which is why he calls it that in verse 16. We draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. It's it's the ministry of our sinless high priest, that gives us confidence. Not ourselves, but Him. It's the perfect sacrifice made by our high, our high priest that gives us confidence. It's knowing that our high priest sympathizes with our weakness that, that gives us confidence. So have you sinned today? What do you do about that? Are, are you going to sin tomorrow? What happens at that point? That that is not the time to avoid the throne of grace. Hold fast to your confession and approach the throne of grace confident in your high priest's ministry. You're not going to be confident in yourself at that moment, and and there's no reason to be confident in, in what Jesus has done, and specifically in this case, who Jesus is. Are you worried or sick? are just, just struggling with, with life's difficulties, draw near to God, confident in the priestly ministry of Jesus, knowing that he understands our weaknesses and, and that he genuinely cares. Are you someone who doesn't pray because you're not good at prayer? Feel like leave that to the people who know what they're doing? Do you think God won't hear stuttering, stumbling prayers? You, you have a high priest who sympathizes with precisely that 
kind of weakness. You have a high priest who is sinless and through whom your prayers are perfected. Don't let your inadequacy keep you from praying. Sure, we can improve in in how we pray, and, and we should, but we should never let our sense of inadequacy keep us from drawing near confidently even to the throne of grace. Are you being tempted? What do you do in the, in the moment of temptation when you're feeling its pull? This, this is also not a time to rely on your own strength. Draw near to the one who never sinned. Hebrews 2.18 again. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. This is the time to draw near confidently, looking to Christ. Let the strong winds of prayer blow you out of the dangerous waters of pride and idolatry and unbelief and into the reliable currents of God's grace. Hold fast to your confession. Draw near with confidence in order to receive and find what we will ultimately obtain. Let's turn third and finally to what we will obtain. We obtain mercy and grace. What do sinful people deserve? Sinful people deserve nothing. It's a devastating answer. In fact, they deserve worse than nothing because sinners are offenders of a holy, transcendent, eternal being. Sinful people deserve nothing. But what do sinful people get when they approach God's throne through the priestly work of Jesus Christ? They receive mercy. You, you get what you, are you, sorry, you don't get what you ultimately deserve. You receive compassion and forgiveness. Uh, in college, I worked for the city of Brookings, and I got to mow grass, and I uh, was on one of the bigger pieces of equipment, uh, which had this special, I think it was even custom cab on it, with air conditioning. We only had one of them, and I was on it that day. It was a good day in the summer when it's hot like this. And I severely damaged the cab. Uh, to make a long story short, uh, it was severe. There might have been a tree involved. And it was one of those moments where I wanted to dig a hole and just stick my head. I just like, I wanted to join the dirt that I came from. Like, your heart just sinks. It was one of those moments that you've probably experienced. Oh, I hated that moment. I, I mean, I knew this was an expensive, this is going to be expensive to fix. And I immediately started going through options in my mind. How, how am I going to deal with this? Uh, first thing that came to my mind, just to be totally honest, it's like I could see my car. I just park it, go to my car, drive away, never return. That, that is what I wanted to do. That, that seemed like, oh, that's what I wanted to do. I didn't do that. But then, to be totally honest, I had another idea. I thought, you know, I bet I can kind of go around these trees, I can park, you know, at the shed. It's getting closer to the end of the day. I could probably park it there. Maybe I could park it, kind of hide it, leave, come back tomorrow. They'll think it was vandalized or something. I can get away with it. Total honest. I, that, I planned it out, but I didn't, I didn't. 
ultimately didn't do it. Um, I, I decided, by the grace of God, I, I went to my boss. I just drove straight to the shop. I parked it right front. I got out, and I went and talked to him. I had no idea how he was going to react. He had happier days, less happier days. Uh, couldn't predict how he was going to respond to whatever was happening. And I just, I just told him exactly what happened. And, uh, and then I sat there and waited. And he looked at how I had obliterated part of the cab. And then he looked at me and he smiled. And he sent me off to do something else. And, um, but he, he went to the person who ultimately held my job in his hand, the parks director, and he, he advocated for me. I deserved punishment. I deserved consequences. I deserved to have to pay for it or have it come out of my paycheck. But I received mercy. And that is what we get when we approach God's throne through the priestly work of Jesus Christ. Not only do you find mercy, but you also find grace. And, and it might not be surprising as you look there to find grace at the throne of grace, right? But, but notice what it says there. When we draw near to the throne of grace, we find grace when we need it the most. Grace to help in time of need. Literally, grace for well-timed help. This is grace that gives us suitable help at the right time. God is good. He, he is so kind. He gives us grace when we need it the most. It's, it's even timely, especially when we ask for it. Uh, the Puritan Thomas Goodwin comments on this verse, and he, here's what he says. He says, we receive grace to help against the power of sin and mercy against the guilt and punishment of sin, both of which are the greatest discouragers to come boldly to the throne. So in other words, in non-Puritan language, that the greatest discouragers in prayer are sin's power over us and sin's claim over us, our guilt. Those are the two, uh, two giant reasons why we do not pray, why we do not approach God's throne, its power over us, and its claim on us. But when we come to the throne of grace, notice what we find. We find grace that solves the problem of sin's power over us, and we find mercy, which solves the problem of sin's claim on us. In other words, we find precisely what we need. Why? Why wouldn't we draw near to the throne of grace? We have, we have a great high priest who's, who's gone beyond the heavens, not just through the veil, but beyond the heavens, into the throne room of the presence of God, who, who now stands there. He didn't just go in there one year and come out and wait till the next year. He went in there, he's still there, sympathizing with our weaknesses, as the one who is tempted in every way, like us, except one way, without sin. In light of that, let us hold fast to our confession. Let us take seriously what we believe and let us draw near to the throne of grace with confidence so that we can obtain mercy 
and grace for well-timed help. It's one thing to have a boss that doesn't understand or listen to you. Thankfully, all bosses aren't like that. It's another thing, though, to have, and this is a scary thought, a representative before God who doesn't understand or listen. What do you do when, when, when life is difficult? What do you do when you're weak? What do you do when you're tempted? Hold fast to what we find here in Hebrews 4. You have a great high priest who stands between you and God. And because he is who he is, he genuinely sympathizes with your weakness. And going to him is the one sure place to find what we all desperately need, mercy and grace. Let's pray. Father, we admit that despite the fact that we have been granted continuous, unlimited access to your glorious throne, we so often fail to draw near to you. We so often default to our own wisdom, our own strength, our own instincts, or the world's answers, perhaps. There's times where we just blatantly ignore you. Father, forgive us for the insanity of these choices. What you have accomplished for us in Christ is beyond us in mercy and and in wisdom. Continuous, unlimited access to you through the priestly work of your Son. Father, when we are tempted to sin, or when we're tempted to despair, when Satan reminds us of our guilt, by your grace, would we look up to you for mercy and grace in time of need? When when we look to the throne of grace, we know we see our Savior who purchased us with his blood, who made an end to all our sin. Father, lift our gaze to you again and again and again until we see our great high priest face to face. By his sufficient merit, raise us to your glorious throne. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.